This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before I even saw the inmates in the yard, I knew something was wrong. And they're just kind of in the air. I could feel it. I just knew something was wrong. The second thing I saw standing about who talked to me was the fact of the way he handled riots and disturbances out there. You have to move fast. And he did. But, uh, the inmates were dissatisfied. I think the administration really didn't see it coming. And it just, uh, it just ignited. It got interesting that night. And I used to take my tear gas gun and go down and sit my cage down there and uh, keep peace, you know. <laughs> There was enough of them there that knew that I maintained discipline and that no rioting would be permitted or somebody was going to be killed. Welcome everybody to a very special edition of Stool Pitch and Saturday. We have Kurt Williams, a former correctional officer who was present in both the 1971 and the 1973 riots at the Idaho State Penitentiary. So Kurt, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Can you tell us a little about yourself, where you were raised? Well, I was basically raised in Boise. We were originally from Tennessee, but I, when we came to Boise, I was just a young child, so I went through all the elementary and school systems in Boise and, okay. and Boise Junior College and Boise State. So so basically grew up right here in town. What directed you towards corrections and, and police work? Well, when I got out of the service... Um, the things I did in the service was not conducive to outside employment. Gotcha. It was all secret stuff. And and uh, so when I got out of the service, I basically was looking for a job. Oh. And my father was working here, and he says, well, go out to the go out to the pen and apply. I said, they'll probably hire you. <laughs> so I, I came out, and, and sure enough, they hired me on the spot. And got issued the uniform, all the, did all the administrative stuff, and... And the next day they call me and says, well, we have a problem. And I says, oh, what's that? And he says, well, we've been thinking about it, and we're not real sure that a father and son team is a real good idea, you know, working in this environment. And so we're not sure we can hire you. Well, I was kind of bummed. But there was a guy here by the name of Abrams. He was the um, assistant warden, I believe. And so... He knew a guy over at State Police by the name of Jim Bays, and he called Jim and says, hey, we got this guy, and, and uh, told him the situation. And so he says, go out and talk to Jim Bays at State Police. So I went out and talked to Mr. Bays and got hired on the spot for State Police. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up going to Pocatello for a few couple of years and up to uh, northern Idaho for a couple of years. And... Um, Situations happened up in northern Idaho. I decided to go a different direction, and I came back to Boise on vacation and and talking to Dad again, and he says, well, go back out to Penn and see what they say. Well, I came back out, and they hired me again. <laughs> so I kind of went both ways, and then later on, of course, I went back to state police and retired okay. out of state police. And is this like the mid to late 60s that you're... Uh, this would have been... Uh, state police would have been in 67, okay. and... Um, came here I think in 70 well the riot was in 71 I was here was it 71 came here in 71 I guess and stayed until 
72 and went back to state police. And what kind of training did you receive to work here? None. None. <laughs> when I got here, Joe Munch was the yard captain at the time. And um, Joe and my dad were pretty good friends. They hunted together and everything. And, mm -hmm. and so Joe put me on one tower on the graveyard shift. And I thought, well, that can't be too bad. You know, I'm up there by myself and not having to deal with the inmates. And yeah. It was okay for the first night. It was new. Mm -hmm. Second night drove me up the walls. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. I mean, it, boring. it was very boring. Yeah. And especially after being, you know, with state police and running around three and 400 miles a day and running and talking to different people. And, and now I'm stuck up in that little round tower. I can touch both sides of it if I reach out. You couldn't have a radio or any, any type of anything up there. You just sat there for eight hours wow. looking at the tops of the buildings. And I, after a couple of nights, I told Joe, I said, I, you know, I can't handle it. Mm -hmm. And um, he says, well, let me see what I can do. And so he put me on the yard. He says, just go anywhere you want to on the yard and just check things out, make things sure everything's okay on the yard and mm -hmm. go inside the, you know, the cell houses and, mm -hmm. and just everywhere. And I had keys to every building here. I could go in and out of every building, just check. So that, that wasn't too bad. At least I had a little freedom to walk around yeah. and, you know, instead of being stuck up. I mean, it's like being locked up up there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I've heard that so many times. Yeah. It was just like that. Yeah. Did you live on site? Did you live in, like, the housing? Or? When we first moved back down, we had a mobile home. Okay. And um, we had it actually moved over on, um, I can't remember the name of the street over there. Good. So next Goodman, Goodman, Goodman yeah, Street, Goodman. yeah, and um, we lived there for three or four months, I guess, okay. and then we moved over into a home over in the North End. So. so when you had this kind of free reign on the yard job, did you see anything that you know shocked you at all, or no? It was like I say, it was on a night shift, okay. and uh, everybody was pretty much locked up, you know, except early in the morning the. Uh, you know, the cooks and stuff would come out, you know, start preparing breakfast and things. Yeah. But no, it was it was basically pretty boring, really. But it was at least I could walk around and, right. you know, instead yeah. of being stuck in one spot. Uh. <laughs> so, but then I um, took me off, of, you know, the night shift and put me on the day shift. Mm. And um, then, of course, you know, interacting with the inmates on a, eight hours a day. Yeah. I was pretty fortunate. I never had... Well, I, I had one minor issue with one of the inmates. It was very minor. Mm. He was a young guy, a doper, you know, and those are the ones you had problems with. You didn't have problems with the lifers or anybody like that. But this guy, of course, trying to make a name for himself. And, and I think the fact that all the inmates knew who I was. They knew my background and knew where I came from. Yeah. And, and I think that really maybe garnered a little bit of respect, you know, because I was a state trooper, and, and I think they kind of respected that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, this guy was, you know, he was he's going to make a name for himself. And Do you remember there, his name? I don't. Oh. No, I don't. Yeah. But incidentally, I did run into him later when he got out, and I was back on the road, <laughs> and we finished the incident. <laughs> and um, But anyway, he... Um, there were several of the older inmates around that they'd kind of gotten to know it a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
anyway, he, he, he was going to take me, and I says, well, that's fine. You know, if you, if you feel, feel like you need to. Mm-hmm. I says, hey, we ought to move over here, though. And he says, why? And I says, because there's a fire extinguisher over there. And he looked at me kind of funny, and he says, so? And I says, well, because I'm going to knock fire out of your ass, and you're going to need that fire extinguisher. <laughs> and all the other inmates, they thought that was funny. And then, of course, that got on the yard. <laughs> so, and, and, but anyway, that was the only incident I had other than that. I got along pretty pretty well with all the inmates. And and I think probably is I kind of treated them, you know, with... You know, with respect. Yeah. I mean, they're humans. Mm-hmm. Made a mistake, but but I still, you know, they're still humans, and and I went out of my way to talk to them and yeah. visit with them, and and you know, like on day shift, they all have their specific spots on the yard where they sat, and yeah. this group sat here, and this group sat here, and you didn't infiltrate that group yeah. if you were another inmate, and of course, the most popular spots were right around the basketball court and. You know, so the, where all the activity was at, and yeah. I'd just go up and I'd just visit with them, you know. So, and I got to know several of them quite well, you know, and and luckily so, because and I'll tell you later why. Um, one individual specifically by the name of Bill Burt. Bill was quite a character. He was a fairly young guy in his mid mid to late twenties, mm-hmm. maybe yeah, mid to late twenties. And just, you know, very outgoing and good-looking guy and everything. And Bill and his partner were robbers. They robbed Albertson stores. And their M.O. was they would find out who the manager of the Albertson store was and find out, you know, where he lived and, and his hours and all this, you know. And the day they decided to rob, they would go to his house, at two of them. And um, one of them would stay at the house with the family, and the other one would take the manager back to the store, and have him open the safe, and then they'd go back and and uh, be on their way. Yeah. So that that was their gig. <laughs> so, and uh, but anyway, I got to know Bill quite well, and and um, like I said there were several of them I got to know pretty well. There was one guy. This is rather kind of a funny deal when I. When I was still up in northern Idaho as a state trooper, about 2, 2.30 in the morning, 3 o'clock maybe, I was on my way home anyway, and came around a curve, and here's his car upside down in the middle of the, you know, on the road. And there was a little bar right there. So I stopped and checked the car, and there was nobody in the car or anything. And, but it had just recently happened. Yeah. And the guy that owned the bar was still there, and so I went and I said, is there been anybody in here in the last few minutes? And he says, well, I have a couple of guys, and they, they just barely left, not more than just three or four minutes ago. Well, directly across the road was a driveway that went up to this house. It, set, it was probably a quarter of a mile off the highway. So I turned my headlights off and just eased up that road really, really slow. And here's these two guys pushing a car out from underneath a carport. And I parked up, stopped my patrol car and got out and they pushed the car and they boom, pushed it right into the front of my patrol car. And the guy, one guy, his name was Wesley Tuttle and it was Wes's brother and I can't remember his brother's name. And um, so anyway, about the time it hit the car, I was standing right there and so I reached out and put the grab on Wes 
and got him hooked up and and um, about that time the owner of the car came out of the house and the brother started running he jumped off the porch and tackled him and so we got him hooked up and got them both in the car and I didn't know the guy at the time the first time I'd met him he introduced himself and he says I'm a retired San Diego City policeman and he says I spent almost 30 years and he says in my 30 years did I ever actually catch somebody actually stealing a car <laughs> so anyway I charged Wes with well I actually charged both of them but with um, and the car that they wrecked was stolen also and so I charged him with you know auto theft and attempted auto theft and much stuff well Wes ended up here that was about you know, probably two three months before I came down here and so I came down and they were kind of giving me a, a tour and in three, he was in three house and just raising hell back in his cell. And I said, what's going on back there? And he said, oh, West Tuttle. I said, West Tuttle? <laughs> Are you kidding me? And he says, why? I said, I just want to brought him down here, <laughs> put him in here. And so anyway, I says, he says, you want to go talk to him? I said, yeah. So we walked out the tier and he had his back to me and I walked up and I said, Wes? And he turned around and his eyes were just, just got huge. He says, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and I says, well, I understand that you were causing some problems down here. And they asked me to come down and talk to you. I says, there's not going to be any more problems, are there? And he says, no, nah, probably not. And I says, okay. <laughs> and that was the end of that story. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> okay. So, but anyway, um, going on, like I say, I made, made friends with a lot of people. You know, here I was here, and mostly the lifers. In fact, I kind of helped initiate a little program. We turned Five House at one time into a moved all the lifers into Five House, mm -hmm. and we kind of talked about that. And actually, one of them, a guy named Carringer, was the one that kind of suggested it to me. He says, you know, they were in with the population with all those young guys, and that's where all the problems. He says, we don't want any problems. You know, we just want to do our time and do it as easily as we can. So he kind of suggested something like that and I took it on up the line and sure enough, I got initiated and anyway, they turned Five House into it and they were able to, you know, decorate their cells how they wanted to, you know, to be as comfortable and I mean, they could be here for a long time. Yeah. Were, they, were they individual, like single man cells? They or? had their choice actually. Oh, okay. You know, they could either go individual or they could roommate if they wanted to and most of them were individuals. Yeah. Went all, all fine and good until I think it'd be on the south the south tier. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, drain in the floor out in there, and you've probably seen there's a patch on that drain. Yeah. And I don't know if you know that story or not, but they started digging a tunnel right there, and we found it. And <laughs> that kind of put the kibosh on the, <laughs> on the lifer house. <laughs> do you know? Do you know who was the, actually the one digging? Not the actual inmate, no, no, I really don't, you know. But um, and do you know how it was discovered? Like, yeah, my dad door? discovered it. Oh. Yeah, he uh, he was walking, and they put the used is they had they had gotten some paint to match the floor wherever they found the paint. I don't know, and they were using like toilet paper and stuff like that, and they would put that in there and put the paint on it. Just happened to step on it, and it gave. <laughs> so, so anyway, that was the end of the tunnel digging. Oh. <laughs> they didn't actually get very far. Yeah. I mean, it was just a small hole, but 
it was obvious what they were doing. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, there were some there were some characters out here. Can you talk about a little bit about your dad? Because we have uh, several oral histories that talk about Big John Williams. Well, and... he, he had, I guess he had kind of a reputation, mm-hmm. I guess because of his size. He, he's probably known more for, you know, finding the, the they call it squawky, and uh, he had a kind of a nose for that. And nobody could understand why, but it's pretty obvious to me because he grew up in a family of bootleggers back in Tennessee. Wow. I mean, they... He's around that stuff his whole life until he moved out here, yeah. so he kind of knew, you know, a little bit about it probably. Yeah. That's been a question because there we have like four or five different former guards who've done oral histories who yeah. say, you know, if we thought people were drunk on the yard, we'd just send John in and he would sniff it out. He'd yeah. always find it. And that's, yeah, yeah that's he uh, <laughs> he was pretty good at it, I guess. And and um, I found one stash once, and it was hidden in the rose garden under number before tower i guess but yeah it was it was quite interesting to say the least yeah. and i don't know if you if you probably know but underneath the um, chow hall there were some little rooms down there well each of those little rooms were little clubs there was the hispanic club and the indian native americans had their their room and yeah. they could go in there and you know be with their own people and do arts and crafts and, and there were some real artists in there some really real artist and I've still got and I don't know where it's at at the house but one of the Native American guys gave me a I was in there once and he was making like a potholder a trivet type thing and it was about so thick and about like that you know octagon shaped but each of the threads were just like a piece of silk and there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of them and he made one, and he, I, was, I was actually watching him do it. Had all kinds of different colors of threads and stuff in there. And he says, "Which which color you like best?" And I said, "I kind of like that purplish one." And you know, well, lo and behold, about probably a month later, he came and says, "Here, I made you something," and uh, gave it to me. And it's, I don't know, we still have it at the house someplace. But um, like I say, you know, it's just it, it's just a matter of getting along with those guys and. You know, treat them with a little respect, and so yeah. <laughs> we had an old fella here by the name of John Williams. He retired shortly after we moved out to the new site. He had the nose; he could smell squawky and find it in where nobody else could. We found some outside the yard where some of the maintenance crew was making it had been buried. And the only thing that they showed was just about an inch of a piece of rubber tubing come up through the grass. Hmm. But the rest of it was all buried. And John found it. During the riot, um, I was off duty. And, um, but we all got called in at night. And so I just jumped in the car and came, didn't put a uniform or anything on. We got here and uh, there were four of us that showed up without a uniform on. We'd been here for like less than a half hour, I suppose. And they were trying to figure out, you know, how to get this thing under control and everything. Well, the 
guy that was talking to the head inmate, they agreed to a head count. But the stipulation was they didn't want any uniforms on the yard. Well, guess what? Four of us went on the yard, and we were met at the call button, you know, by the inmates, the ones that were in charge, and escorted in. And I, myself and one other guy took three house, and um, a couple other guys took four house to start with. Well, when you did a count, you always went upstairs to the top floor and all the way to the very end and worked back, you know, all the way down. Well, you've been up in three house, you know how narrow the catwalk is. And well, we go up there and and all the inmates are in the building. They're they're in their cells, but the doors were all open. And then they also had a couple of inmates at the lockbox to make sure, you know, that they didn't get locked up. And every one of them was displaying some kind of a weapon, whether it be a knife or a, a bar from the weight room or something, you know. One guy had a big wooden paddle, you know, from the chow hall that they stirred the big pots with. And, well, luckily, in the very first cell that we went to was Bill Burt. And like I said, Bill and I had become pretty good friends as far as a inmate and a, you know, correctional officer can become. But, but we were pretty close. And so he was in a cell all by himself. And so we started there and checked him off. We went to the next cell, and the next thing we heard was hostage. Let's take them hostage. I said, well, this is not going to turn out good. And um, we got two or three cells on down the line, and, and they were serious. They were going to take us. And, I mean, what do you do? And Bill came out of his cell, and he says, no. He says, Kurt's my friend, and we're not taking them hostage. And he escorted us, and then a couple others joined him after that. Mm-hmm. That kind of gotten to know. They escorted us throughout the whole count. Wow. And um, then we went over to meet the other two guys at Four House when they came out. And then they escorted us back to the main oh. gate. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That could have been so, a totally different story. Yeah, it was... It was of all my time in law enforcement, the 28 years I spent, that was probably the the scared I probably ever was. Yeah. Because, you know, you get taken hostage, it's, chances aren't real good. So, but yeah, Bill, Bill and I came a little closer after that. So. But he also realized that just because I talked to him and, and uh, you know, befriended him a little bit, he wasn't getting any special favors. None of them expected it. Yeah. They, they they expected, you know, who I was, and but they didn't expect I was going to haul stuff in for them or take stuff out for them or do them any special favors. Yeah. That never happened. And so it was a good relationship, I think. And With the count, was anybody missing at no, this point? No, okay. everybody was accounted for and everything. All right. And, and this and, is that first day? Yeah, this was the first night of it. I mean, okay. with probably within two hours after it happened. I mean, it was still right in the heat of things. And yeah. They had already broken into the hospital and gotten all the drugs and, and of course, all the hit and squawky. I mean, half of them were drunk and the other half were high on drugs. And yeah, do you know what kind of drugs that they would anything have Anything they could get their hands yeah. on. Anything, and they completely wiped the hospital out. Jeez. And, um, and like I say, all of them had weapons. And, 
Anyway, the riot happened, and um, and the guy got killed. Bill Butler. Yeah, Butler. I was just thanks. I was yeah. thinking he's trying to think of his name, but yeah. Butler was there. Well, a guy named Masick and Danny Powers were involved in the killing as well as Bill. And um, so anyway, those were the ones when the riot when we finally got to riot squelched. Myself and several other officers at the time, we took we came in about three o'clock in the morning. And we rounded up the 12, what we thought were the yard leaders, took them to the new penitentiary. Well, on the way out there, we came in and got them and shackled them all up and everything in the middle of the night. So, and did it quite, you know, as discreetly as we could. Got them loaded in the cars and two people, two you know, inmates in the back seat and two of us in the front. Well, the particular car I was in, um, I was actually with a deputy sheriff and he had a dog. And that dog sat in the front seat between us and looking at the back seat. And he just had his chin rested on the top of the seat. And every time those two inmates in the back would make any kind of move at all, that dog would... (laughs) 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 They had just sat there. And they says, where are you guys taking us to? Where are you taking us? And he says, you're taking us to the airport. You're flying us out of state, aren't you? And he says, I don't know. So we get to the airport and go on past the airport and turn on Pleasant Valley and he says why are you taking us out in the desert you're going to take us out in the desert and turn us loose then shoot us <laughs> yeah. and they had no clue but anyway we got to the new penitentiary and and um, there was one building at the time out there and they called it Five House it was up and they had to, the cells would work in it but there were absolutely no windows in the building or anything and so that's where the first 12 went. And Bill happened to be one of them. He was high on drugs and stuff too. And it took him two or three days to, you know, come back to reality after that. And, and Bill was in the first, first cell, you know, on, on one of the first block, on the block there. And, and when he first got out there, he, would, he wouldn't get out of his bed. He'd just lay in his bed day and night for a couple of days. And, Tried to talk to him, he wouldn't talk or anything. And I went by there once and he was in a fetal position, all covered up with his blanket still on the bed. And still he wouldn't say a word. Went by the next day I went to work, he's underneath his bunk in a fetal position, covered up with his blanket. And I finally just got down, you know, to his level. I says, Bill, I says, man, you can't carry on like this. I says, you can't do this. He finally peeked out. He says, can we talk? And I says, yeah, we can talk. He says, not here. He says, I can't talk here. So I went back out and talked to the guy that's running the place. And, and so we moved him over into another block, into another tier. And uh, he was just he was just shaking and just pale. I mean, just, I said, what's going on? He says, well, I'm in trouble. I says, what happened? He says, you know, Butler. And I says, yeah. He says, I walked in before Butler, before before he got killed, and Danny Powers and Masick were in there. Well, what happened was Butler had raped Masick's boyfriend, and so Masick was going to get even with him. And so they told uh, Bert what they were going to do. And he says, he told me, he says, I told him, he said, I didn't want anything to do with it. And he says, well, you've got no choice. 
You know, I mean, we've told you what we're going to do, and you're part of it now. So the plan was, was Masick went to get Butler and to invite him over under the pretense they had some squawky and, you know, have a drink of squawky with him. And when they came in, Bert, Bill had a bar about so long, about 18, 24 inches long, weight bar. And um, the deal was when, when Butler came in, Bill was supposed to get behind him. And when they gave him the signal, he was supposed to hit him on the back of the head as hard as he could with that bar. Mm-hmm. And he says, I just, I stood there and he says, I knew I couldn't do it. And he says, they gave me the signal, so I just closed my eyes and came down to hit him on the shoulder instead of the head. Well, then they, the other two jumped him. And he said, um, Powers was sitting on top of him. And Powers is a big man. He was a pretty good sight boy. He's probably 6'3", 6'4", and probably weighed about 225, 230, right in that neighborhood. And he was a, he's an ex-boxer. And he was, he was pretty intimidating. And um, Butler, or not Butler, but Masick was just a small guy. And uh, he said Powers was stabbing him in the chest and in the stomach, and Masick was stabbing him in the neck. And he says every time Masick would stab him in the neck, he would twist the, the knife three or four times and pull it back out. And he says, I just, just stood there, and there's nothing I could do. I just stood there and watched it. Well, anyway, he, he turned state's evidence after that. We, he told me the whole story. And I says, well, you know, we're going to have to get somebody out here and, and uh, follow up on it. And so we called the, you know, the sheriff's office, and everybody got involved in it, and he confessed the whole thing. So, but anyway, he told me later, he says, after all, you know, he, we kept, he had to keep him over in that other tier by himself because he was, he's marked now. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, I often wondered whatever happened to him. I know he got shipped out, but I have no idea where he actually ended up or if he's even still alive today. I don't, I don't know. So anyway, I was talking to him one day and he says, Curtis, I got to tell you something. I says, what? And he says, I really appreciate you taking the time and you know, talking to me and spending time. He says, it means a lot. Yeah. And he says, because of what you've done, he says, I've, I've changed my mind. He says, I'm, I'm going to do my time. I'm going to get out of here, and I'm not going to rob any more Albertson stores. I thought, that's cool, Bill. He says, yep. He says, when I get out, I'm just going to stick to small independent grocers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Bill Burke from years back before he ever went to prison. We lived over on South Curtis Road, and Bill Burke was one of the sack boys at the old country store down on the Hillcrest Shopping Center. There's nice young kids you'd ever want to meet. And he got in trouble some way and got in prison, and he just did a flip flop. There were there were guys the guys that we took out to the the new pen were they were some tough hombres. There was a guy named Moen, and Moen was real quiet, real quiet individual, but very very muscular. I mean, he he lifted weights constantly. And, I mean, he's probably about oh, six foot six one maybe, but just a just muscular, but very quiet. And he was one of those that. He didn't didn't talk a lot. 
he, when he did, you know, I mean, he people listened to him, and the staff never did trust him. They said, yeah, he's probably the, one of the worst ones out here. Well, when we got to the new pen, I um, was talking to him one day, and, and I says, how'd you like to come out and, you know, mop the tears and stuff? And mm-hmm. he said, are you kidding? I says, no, I'm serious. You know, get him out, anything to get out of that cell. Yeah. And God, he just, he just beamed. And just go get out and mop the tear down. You know, it took him a couple hours. The day I left, he yelled at me to come out and went back, and he thanked me oh, for, man. you know. He said it was his first time, in, and he had spent most of his life in prison. In prison. He yeah. says, first time in his whole prison life that anybody had showed any trust in him, and, and he said he really appreciated it. But yeah, it was an interesting time. There was one other incident in Four House, the very last cell downstairs when you first walk in, mm-hmm. beyond the north side, was the barber shop. There was a young guy in there, and he was he was a doper, but he was the barber, and so he kind of had that cell all to himself. He had his barber shop set up in there, and uh, well, he had a bad night one night and cut himself. So we ended up having to take him to the hospital. And I, had, I went to the hospital with him. And he'd lost a lot of blood. I mean, he was he was pretty gray time we got to the hospital and pretty much, you know, incoherent. And of course, had him strapped to the table and, and actually had a cuff on his one of his feet, you know, to the table. And, and um, he's laying there and the nurse is trying to put an IV in. Well, he had shot so many drugs in his veins that his veins were all pretty well collapsed and she worked for probably 15 minutes trying to get a needle and all of a sudden he opened his eyes just as wide as he could open them says he saw me he says Mr. Williams what's going on and I says well you cut yourself you're in the hospital he says well, what are they doing I says well they're trying to trying to get an IV started and they're having trouble finding a vein he reached up and grabbed the needle from the nurse, and we went, boom, stuck it in his arm, and there, and he passed out again. Wow. And they hooked the IV up and started shooting blood in him, and a few hours later, he got his collar back. And <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty incredible. He knew, he knew where his veins were at. <laughs> so, How did you get a release from this like what did you do what was a hobby that you did it didn't it didn't really bother me at the time it, it was just a job yeah. you know i mean i well i guess i was kind of busy during that time <laughs> yeah. you know and uh but no it was it was just a job i mean yeah. i guess i didn't know any better oh, okay. <laughs> still young and dumb <laughs> but uh, you know you, you can't take it home with you you know so yeah but do you remember the like the discovery of Bill Butler? Do you remember when they found his body? They found him in the well, in the boxing in that area. He wrapped up in a mat. Yeah. And um, and I guess Powers and Masick were just covered with blood, according to Bill. He yeah. said they were just covered in blood, and so they went and changed their clothes and got rid of their clothes and all that, you know. And of course, they didn't find him for you know until the riot was pretty much was over. Yeah. That's when they discovered the body, but. And by that time, we had pretty well taken them out to the new place. Yeah. Do you know how long was the the riot, like kind of from the... 
It was a couple of days. Yeah, the first night was the worst, yeah. and then because they brought in troops and yeah. you know kind of squelched it. Uh-huh. And uh, but yeah, the first night, of course, was the worst. And yeah, like what was the atmosphere leading up to it? It was it was hot, you yeah. know, and it was just a you know, and the cell blocks were just. I mean, it was almost unbearable in there. It was so dang hot and stuff, and everybody seemed to think that was probably the the worst part. You know, was the heat and yeah. And then you you were back here for the '73 riot. Yeah, I um, well, before we even get to there, if you oh. if you want to talk a little bit about the new the new facility oh, while we yeah. were there, absolutely. Well, there were there were some characters out there. When we when we first went out there, they brought a guy by the name of Virgil Carey back. And Virgil was had worked here and retired, and um, worked here for quite a number of years. Well, they brought him back out of retirement, so we rounded up the twelve who took out there. And Virgil showed up the first morning, and we had a little meeting, and he says, "This is how it's going to be, and there's not going to be any nonsense. We're in charge, and we're going to let them know we're in charge." And that was just the type of guy he was. He sat down with a yellow notebook and notepad and wrote out about six rules, handwritten. And we went down to tier and he says, okay guys, this is how it's gonna be. On Monday you'll do this, on Tuesday you'll shower and, and you'll get fed this, this and this and they ate sandwiches, three, three meals a day sandwiches. They had to make them here and bring them out to the new pen. And, you know, along with whatever milks or juices, whatever, you know. And that was the way it was. There was no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And, and the guys that were out there knew Virgil, and they knew he wasn't kidding. What kind of a person was he? I've heard his name mentioned. Virgil Carey? Yeah. As fine a man as you ever worked for. Tough, rough. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it himself, themselves. He'd just been around that long, and uh, he was tough, if he had to be. He treated the inmates and, and, the, and the employees alike. He, he was fair with every one of them. But if he had to knock a man down, he wouldn't hesitate a second. He'd just dick him right there, inmates. When they, when they finally came down off the drugs and the alcohol and everything, there for a couple of days, they were a little rowdy, but then they settled right down. And, and um, then we started getting, they started bringing more people out there. The ones that were causing problems, they'd haul them out there to us. Well, they brought a kid out there by the name of Bobby Beeson. And Bobby Beeson killed a baby over in Blackfoot. And that guy was absolutely incredible. He... We put him in a cell, and those cells, you know, it's a door closes, it goes into a channel, and that channel is quarter-inch steel, and it's welded on both sides, and the door goes in and locks, and that's how it's closed. Bobby Beeson, with his bare hands, took one of those pieces of metal off, and how he did it, I to this day, I don't know. But he got one of those pieces of, it was about, well, when he got it down to where he could, he broke it and a piece about three feet long and, you know, a couple inches wide, and he was able to open his cell door, and he got out. And those windows in that particular building, there was probably 
you know, tin windows. They were as wide as these two by four openings here. And they had, the windows were kind of louvered like a Venetian blind, they would open up. He broke every single one of those out that night with that piece of bar. And the two officers that were on duty weren't gonna go on the tier. So they called Virgil, told him what was going on. And Virgil called me about three, four o'clock in the morning. He says, can you meet me out there? And I said, yeah. So we drove out to the new pen at oh, dark 30. We got there about the same time and they told us what was going on and Beeson was all the way at the very end of the of the tier and that's where his cell was at, was the very last one. And Virgil says, open the cell right next to him. So we opened the one right next to him and he says, Beeson, get your butt in that cell. Screw you, you old son of a baby. Come down here and put me in. He says, well, if we have to, we're going to, but if, but you need to go in that cell. He says, you know, he was yelling of all sorts of obscenities and everything. And Virgil says, okay. He reached in his back and pulled out a pistol and went boom <clears throat> and popped one off right beside his head against the wall. And Beeson went in the cell. <laughs> he says, okay, close the door. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, could you do that today? Probably not. <laughs> but that was virtual. Yeah. He didn't, yeah. he didn't take any guff. And another guy out there, a guy named Alfred Mellinger. Um, Mellinger was one of those guys. He was, he was a hardcore con. Young guy, though, but a hardcore con. And um, he was never very, very friendly. I mean, he, he'd speak, but, you know, he wasn't very friendly. But one day we went back, and it was time. For, it was the day for him to shave, and um, myself and Larry Wright were working that day, and we took breakfast back, and everything was good. Morning, Mr. Williams. Good morning, Mr. Wright. How you doing today? Great day, isn't it? Just on and on. I says, told Larry, I said, there's there's something up. There's something going on here. Yeah. Ah, he's all right. I said, no, I'm telling you, there's something. Something's <laughs> up. And anyway, he ate breakfast, and we picked up the trays, and, you know, same thing. So we went back, and I told the guy that was running the thing then, I said, I don't think we ought to give him a razor today. And, no, nah, he'll be okay. He'll be fine. I said, okay. Well, it was those old razors that you unscrew it and put the double blade in and screw it back up and hand him the razor, and as soon as we handed him that razor, he stuck it in and broke the handle off and got the blade out. And he had a couple of matchbooks, that pieces of cardboard, and he wrapped around there and just sat down and went bam, 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 on three times on each wrist and just sat down on the floor and the blood was just, just squirting out. And so we ended up hauling him to the hospital. And oh, yeah. And he, he made it too. Yeah. Know, so. Yeah. Were there others, other suicides that... Those are the only two that I was personally involved in, yeah. and uh, I'm sure there are others, but I, nothing that I was involved in. But yeah. And both of these guys happened to cut themselves. So. Were there any other deaths at the site other than Bill no. Butler while you... Oh. No, not while I was working, no. Yeah. Wow. No. no. There was a guy out there, my name, and I can't remember John's last name, the immaterial, but he was an absolute nutcase. He um, 
he belonged in the yeah, mental institution. I mean, he was he was that far gone. He thought that the Russians had planted something in his head, and the aliens were coming, and and he'd be okay for a couple of days, and all of a sudden something would set him off, and he would just for two or three days, all he would just yell, 24 hours a day about the the Russians and the aliens, and the, you know, inside his head, and and but. So yeah, anytime I got bored out there, he just got John set off, and, and things got lively. <laughs> and I, no, I'm not gonna just tell you that. Oh. <laughs> uh, oh. uh, he was one of those that they was, you know, they having trouble with him here on the yard. So anytime they'd have trouble with one yeah. here on the yard, they'd they'd haul him out there to us, and because yeah. they were kind of isolated out there and get him away from the general population here and. And, um, How many guards worked out at the new site? Well, there was two of us on each shift, so there was you know three shifts plus the supervisors, you know probably six. And I'm sure there was a couple extra just for oh. f- you know fill-ins and stuff, but six or eight of us, you know. But did they pull six from here and bring them there, yeah. or did they hire six no, more out here? No, we six experienced ones from here. Gotcha. And uh, like I said, Larry Wright was one. Of course, Larry went on to become, yeah. you know. On up, he, he was here quite a few years, and um, but yeah, Larry was one, and uh, I can't remember who all was out there. I think Stevenson was out there, and it was actually a pretty good crew. We all got along pretty well out there, yeah. and it was actually pretty easy duty because, you know, I mean, they were they were badasses, but yeah. you know, at least you knew what you were dealing with, yeah. you know, and. Um, but they were locked up the majority of the time, and when they were were out, it was only one, mm-hmm. one at a time come out. You know, they'd come out and take a shower, and, and um, you know, while they were taking the shower, we'd go through their cell, you know, and check their cells out and everything to, you know, do a shakedown. And so, rarely ever found anything out there. Yeah. <laughs> there was one time I messing with Danny Powers' mind one day, and like I say the. They were actually still building the building that when we were actually had these guys in there. There was no windows in them, you know. And so I was in the tier that Powers was on, and and I walked over and I was walking by the windows. And why one of these guys didn't find it, I don't know. But there was a piece of aluminum, probably six, 14, 16 inches long and about an inch wide, and it was already out to a point. And it was just laying there in the window cell, in the window well, I mean, where the windows are. And so I picked it up and and I walked over to the power cell and I says, what the hell are you doing with this, Powers? And he says, that's not mine. I says, well, it, that's where I found it. And oh gosh, he was, no, I'm telling you, it wasn't mine. I'm telling you, it's not mine. <laughs> anyway, I finally told him, no, I'm just messing with you. I told him where I says it. I'm glad I found it and you didn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Serious. Uh, he kind of laughed about it. And, but of all the inmates out here, he was probably the only one, maybe maybe mowing a little bit, but Powers is probably the only one I actually had any, you know, I won't say fear, but in, intimidation about, I guess, a little yeah. bit. Because he was, he was a bad individual. You know? He was... Just anyway, back when I say he was a fighter, you know, a professional fighter and big guy, and you know, so 
Yeah, he came in like on a, I think a forgery charge and probably still in prison. I don't, I don't know if he is or not, but I'm not sure where, where I was. Yeah. The years I spent with state police, after I left the penitentiary, it was probably one of the best moves I've made in my whole career, yeah. was to come here and work for a year. Mm-hmm. And um, and the reason being, it's just being around the, the inmates, you know, that much time, you got a feel of how they think. And I mean, just their nonverbal communication, their actions, their, you know, everything. And when I went back on the road, and I'd stop a vehicle for whatever reason, if it was an ex-con, I knew immediately, as soon as I walked up to the vehicle, and within within seconds, I knew that I was dealing with an ex-con, just just from being around them, and that was that was a big help. It was a big, big help. So, and um, <laughs> the one inmate I was telling you about that challenged me on the yard. I'd arrested a drunk driver. Back in those days, the um, Ada County Jail was up above the old courthouse down, downtown, right beside the Capitol building. And it was like three or four stories up. You had to take an elevator up, and it was a real narrow hallway down amongst the cells. And in order to book somebody, you had to go all the way down. And there was a the jailer at that time, a guy named Walt, was from New York. And he was a New York City policeman had retired. He came out here and got hired on as a jailer at Ada County. And he was a what you would typically think of as a New York City policeman. Very gruff and didn't take any crap. Well, I addressed this drunk one night and and drunk driver and I took him to jail and had to walk him all the way down to the end of the into the hallway there. Well, this young man I was telling you about was in Ada County Jail then. He'd gotten out and he got picked up again. Well, he stationed himself right in the middle of the where we had to walk. And I says, well, here we go. So we got down there. I had my drunk on one side, and and as I walked by him, he, he wasn't going to move, so I just took him and just kind of pushed him into the cell. And he hit his head, and he kind of fell to the floor. He started screaming, and Walt says, maybe next time you'll get out of the way, won't you? <laughs> and that was the end of that. Then I ran into him a third time. And I stopped the car. I walked up to the car, and he was sitting in the back seat with a young lady. And I think, I can't remember why he even stopped the car now, but it's immaterial. But I, you know, I walked up. And just as I walked up to the rear window, he stuck his hand out the window and gave me the bird. Oh. And about the time his hand came out and he gave me the bird, I was close enough. I grabbed oh. grabbed his hand and bent it back and pulled him about halfway out of the car. And I says, when's this going to end? Yeah. I says, you know, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> and that was the last time I saw him. <laughs> Man. Yeah. You brought up uh, Larry Wright, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Wright. Uh, can you tell us a little about about him and working with him? Oh, he's a good guy. Yeah. We, we got, of course, we were both new into our careers at that you know at that stage, and so you know we just worked together really well. And he was he was a no nonsense type of guy. He was funny. He was f- fun to be around and yeah. kidded around a lot. And but when it came to the inmates, he was you know he's pretty serious. Mm-hmm. But now I just like I say we're young in our careers and just so yeah a good guy i I always liked larry 
Yeah, I always hear he's very he was very by the book and yeah, yeah but good guy. Everybody yeah. has worked with him. Oh yeah. So yeah, when I when I finally left out there, they they all knew that I was you could go to leave and go mm-hmm. back to state police and and uh, in fact I turned down two patrol cars before I finally took one here in Boise and so I turned in my notice and everything and of course you know I got out to the inmates out there and a lot of not all of them obviously but a lot of them said you know hey good luck and enjoyed being around you blah 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 you know and one guy by the name of Ben I can't remember Ben's last name you know I walked by his cell one day and he says hey I got something for you he says what and he says I I did something for you little poem? Yeah. He wrote a poem for me. Benjamin R. Graham, is that it? Something, yeah, that sounds right. Oh, okay. I always called him Ben. Yeah. Thursday, January 20th, 1972. Should I read it? Yeah, go You want to read it? Sure. All right. All right. When I grow up, reach my maturity, guess what it is? I'm going to be a highway patrolman with a gun on my hip, letting no one give give me any lip. <laughs> I'd chase down speeders, citations I'd write, why I'd even mark work from dawn to night. I'd sit in my car by the roadside, even in the bushes. I'd probably hide, (laughs) doing my thing, man, enforcing the law. Best state trooper you have ever saw. (laughs) I'd fire my pistol. My red lights I'd beam, playing the law game at just every twin. Catching those robbers, those nasty villains, a highway patrolman by the name of Kurt Williams. <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. You still have it, too. Yeah. Wow. I'd love to take a photo of that before you go today. Okay. That's really nice. So they all knew you were leaving? And oh, yeah. It was kind of a little going away party the last day and so uh, yeah but you know to have people like like Mo and, and that's the day he told me was the day I left and, uh-huh. you know to have somebody like that yeah. I mean he was he's one bad individual yeah. and you know to say have him say thanks you know it was, yeah. it was pretty and Danny Powers did and and um, most of the guys out there the old you know the old guys mm-hmm. you know the Masics and the Powers and all those guys, and then finished out my career with State Police, 28 years. 28 years, wow. Thank yeah. you for all that service. Uh, That's amazing. Well, all of it wasn't on the road. I, uh-huh. I put 15 on the road, and the last 13 I worked out of headquarters as a, did all the training, okay. and ran the training academy, and oh. and, um, and actually worked with um, a guy named Tom Tomtan, who started the uh, correctional training facility. We both worked out of the same office. Uh-huh. Tom moved in with us. and So we, um, you know, we changed a lot of ideas. In fact, part of our training, when I did the, um, started the State Police Academy, and that's a whole different, st- a whole different, another story, but, uh, but to make it brief, when I hired on as a state trooper, they handed me a set of car keys and a bunch of ticket books and warning cards and said, go to work. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. And when I became the, you know, took over training, I started the actual formal, you know, State Police Academy. 
it was a 17-week live-in academy. And um, part of that training, we had one week designated as Officer Survival Week. And we talked about various things, motorcycle gangs, how to approach a vehicle, blah, you know, all sorts of things. Yeah. Talked about the different gangs and talked about tattoos and prison tattoos and this type of thing. And I had one day set aside that we actually went to the penitentiary as a class because we'd been telling them about the tattoos and the meanings of the tattoos and the, the different, you know, the colors and how they get them and this type of thing. And now they can actually go out there and see them and rub shoulders with the inmates for a day and had lunch with them and the whole thing, you know. And it was it was a two-edged sword. We wanted them to experience that and see the, you know, if they if you see this on the street, this is what you this is what it means. This is what you've got. And the other part of the story was I want them to become familiar with the the yard mm-hmm. at the penitentiary because that's the second wave in, and it kind of be kind of nice to know where Max is at versus the chapel. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, so it was kind of say it kind of a two-edged sword, and it, yeah. it worked out well. And and I think the um, the people at the you know the new pen appreciated it too. Yeah. And, and, you know. Yeah, it was kind of fun taking them out there. They'd be, you know, around 20, 25 of them mm-hmm. when they go out. And, and you know, I had some of the cons came in and talked to them about various things. And, you know, they spent time on the tiers with them and yeah. just visiting with them on the tiers and had lunch with them and in the yard. And so yeah, it, was, it was a good experience for them. So, I mean, it's, it's different when you go through that gate and it closes behind you. I, I've gone out a couple times and, I mean, it's... I work here. I've been here the last six years, but it's different. To oh yeah, reiterates what it would have felt like coming here at oh, having yeah. that gate closed. And, yeah, yeah. Was, well, to have that gate closed on you that night of that riot was it was a whole different meaning, Gosh, you know. Yeah. So, did you just feel like it was your duty that like I have well, to do? I mean, like, yeah, you're ordered to do it. You just go do it. You yeah. know. I mean. You know, coming out of the military, and of course, state police is a quasi-military organization, and you got your chain of command. There's a chain of command here, and you know, you listen to orders. So yeah, you just go in and do it. And luckily, like I say, and it was luck on my part, I guess, that I had befriended a few of them before, you know, before it all happened, and and especially Bird, of course, and and. Um, I can't say for sure, but I probably a pretty good percent that he he probably saved our life that night. You know, because you know you get taken hostage in a situation like that, it's your chances aren't real good. You know. Were you involved in the response to the 1980 riot at the site? Well, the 73 riot. I, I was back on the road in 73, and um, of course we got called out here, and we all showed up and. Was back in state police uniform, and I was up on the wall right beside one tower. There was about oh, six or seven of us standing up there, 12 of us or so. And I think I relayed this to you through the day when I was talking to you. It was so funny because right, right along the that alleyway between the main wall and uh, two house, mm-hmm. there was a whole group of them, and you could tell they were they were scheming to do something. Yeah. You know, you could just tell. At least I could. I don't know if the other guys could or not. And and we kept watching them, and and I think I mentioned something to the other guys. I said, "Keep an eye on those guys." And well, just 
all of a sudden, every one of them just started charging toward the wall, just at a dead run. Well, you know, from the wall out 15 feet is dead man. And it was always, of course, it wasn't raked as pretty that night. But, and, uh, but you didn't set foot on dead men. Yeah. And, man, as soon as they hit that, all of us in unison, just those 12 gauges, and you could, it just echoed. Yeah. And, boy, every one of them came to a screeching halt and did an about face and scattered. <laughs> <laughs> Were they just trying to get a reaction I, out I of you? I think, think so. I think so, because there was no way they could have gotten over the wall. But, but so, I'm not sure who got got the worst end of it, though. <laughs> Were you out on patrol that night and got a call to yeah. come to the prison? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was working. Of course, they called everybody in, whether you were working or not. Yeah. Everybody was out here, the whole district. And of course, then I got involved with a few escapes after that. And oh, yeah. Joe Munch was still the yard captain. I always remember Joe Munch on the radio. We have an escape. <laughs> Cleo Jean, whatever he's name, oh. in that German accent. <laughs> What, what was it like working under Captain Munch? <laughs> I enjoyed him. Yeah. You know, I mean, I really enjoyed him because he had quite a background. And I just just talking to him, you know, when we had free time, just spending time with him, talking to him, uh-huh. and listening to his background. And, yeah. and um, Can you knew. let our listeners know, like... Joe was an East German, and he escaped East Germany and was caught... And he escaped. He got he caught. Got caught, and he escaped from the German prison. Went to France and joined the French Foreign Legion, and was ended up in Vietnam, and got thrown in prison in Vietnam, and escaped out of the prison in Vietnam, and somehow or another from there came to the United States. From there, and at least that that was my how I understood it anyway, and. And how he ended up in Boise, I'm not really quite sure how he ended up here. But the thing with Joe is um, he um, he was no obviously no nonsense, yeah. and the the prisoners knew that you didn't you didn't screw with Joe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if Joe said something, that's the way it was. Mm-hmm. And and I knew from. You know, working for him, I knew he had my back. Yeah. If I ever got in trouble, I knew all I, all I had to do was, you know, I had a radio and I'd say, Joe. <laughs> yeah, he'd yeah. be there and he had my back and vice versa. Uh-huh. And uh, I think he appreciated that. Yeah. You know, and he later on became a Ada County deputy sheriff and I worked with him on the road a little too. And, oh, yeah. you know, so in law enforcement on the road. So, yeah. Yeah. Goes around, I guess. I bet we got better, better count of them inmates here than they do in our that new kindergarten they build out there. Why do you call it a kindergarten? Because it is. Uh, that was one of the reasons I got so upset with the prison system. Uh, pool tables, uh, TVs in their cells. Uh, that's not a prison, my God. That was a prison. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You open your mouth, you had it. You was a number when you walked through that door. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. 
Huh. And the inmates understood that. But see, the funny part of it is, inmates like it better when you have a secure, disciplined, harsh prison than a goddamn kindergarten. Out there, that prison isn't run by the penitentiary staff, it's run by the inmates. Huh. It's run by the inmates. Do you, is there anything else from that 73 riot that you, you remember? Well, other than, just like I say, just being up on the, up on the wall and watching yeah. everything burn and, yeah. and could never understand what the hell are they thinking about? They're burning down the chow hall. Yeah. Of all things to burn down the chow hall. Yeah. You know, that doesn't commute. <laughs> and, and of course the chapel, but, but, um, no, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But no, because once the, you know, once that thing was over, we were just back on the road working, you know. And, yeah. And um, so there were a couple other guys escaped out of here, and um, we got in a big chase with them. And a friend of mine was a, um, he was up on Highway 21. They escaped and they stole a car and they got up on Highway 21 to the subdivision right there by the Crow Inn, the old Crow Inn. And um, stole another car because we somebody blew the radiator out of the first car they stole and it quit on them. And so they stole another one, and one of my buddies got on them. Mm-hmm. Well, back in those days, the old radios that we had they were line of sight radios, yeah. and you get across a hill in between you. There's yeah. no communication. Well, and it was in the middle of the winter time, and roads were slick and we were running just as hard as we could run. Well, they got as far as we could go down the hill to turn in to go to Roby Creek and they lost the car and went into the side of the mountain. And he was about, oh, he was probably a mile, mile and a half ahead of me. And of course, a couple minutes more before I got there. Well, when I showed up, here's the their car inside the mountain, his car sitting right in the middle of the road with the Lights going, the door open, a siren still going, and not a soul around anywhere. And this is like two, three o'clock in the morning. Not a soul. And I finally went over and turned his siren off. Finally found him. He was underneath the bridge that goes across Roby Creek with his shotgun. I says, "What in the hell are you doing?" He says. Sons of bitches have got to steal another car, and the only ones available is these right over here. And he was like a troll underneath the bridge waiting for him to go across to, to steal another car. <laughs> so, anyway, some more troops arrived, you know, a few minutes later. And, and so I went down on Roby Creek itself, and there's a big, huge bank of boulders there, you know. And I was using my spotlight, and I was shining up into those boulders, and boom. There they were, oh. hiding behind a couple, you know, big boulders, and they just had tank tops on. And supposedly oh. one of them was a, a karate expert and all kind of stuff, you know. And so I kept, kept the light on them, and you know, told the other guys where they were at. Yeah. So a couple guys went down, and they wouldn't walk back up. They refused to walk back up. So it's okay. So a guy named Tom Taylor worked for the Ada County at the time. Tom's kind of a cowboy. Uh-huh. He had a big old rope in his car, and he went down and like, had a couple of ropes and just tied ropes around their armpits and drove them <laughs> up over the boulders back up to the road. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, 
but they were pretty meek the time they got back to the. Cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, it was fun and games. Yeah. yeah. Dang. Well, is there anything else that? Well, there there was one incident. You know how the Sally Port works. Well, every day we'd have a truck come in, you know, garbage truck. Yeah. And it was just an open bed truck. It had probably four or five foot sides on it. You'd go to Chow Hall and get all the garbage and make the run through the yard. Mm-hmm. Had the garbage truck duty. You know, just go with it. All yeah. you had to do. Didn't have to pick up garbage. <laughs> and there was a, we had a probe, a big old iron probe, you know, sharp on one end, you know. And, well, the day that I happened to have the garbage truck duty, one of them decided he'd try it. And he got in there, and of course they threw all kinds of papers and all, you know, stuff yeah. on top of him. And till we got to the Sally Port, and the way that works is you go to the Sally Port, and the yard gate opens, you pull in, the yard gate closes. Mm-hmm. Then you're in between the two gates. And I just got up on the truck with the side of the truck with the probe and started probing. Well, apparently I got pretty close to his head or something one time because he knew the next probe was probably going <laughs> to... And up he came, so... Yeah. Uh, can't remember who that was, though. That happened in, like, the late 50s. Yeah, it happened again in the Jeez. 70s, too. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I often wondered... The garbage dump is still up there, obviously. It's buried now. Uh-huh. How many years from now somebody will be digging around up there and start uncovering a lot of stuff, you know, from back in that era when they were using that as a garbage dump. We've had a lot of people tell yeah. us that there were things like refrigerators and... Or all kinds of stuff up there. Yeah. Wow. And, of course, there's a cemetery up there also. Did you ever have any connection with the cemetery? No. Did you ever visit it? I just it knew or? it was up there, and yeah. I was up there a few times, and... But it was just for the inmates that nobody claimed, and but yeah. and I don't know if it's even still marked up there yeah, or not. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Trying to do a bit of work on it. Yeah, and, yeah, and try to figure yeah. out everybody that's buried there because right. there weren't a lot of records. So we've confirmed yeah. fifty-five people so far, yeah. and and of course, Two Yard was still here when I was working here, yeah. and, and um, you know, it's basically prison industries. And mm-hmm. I often said that if I was ever the warden of the penitentiary it would go back to those days yeah. have the prison industries have the farms mm-hmm. you know that this thing was completely self self-contained at one time yeah. as far as food and they they produce so much food here canned food and beef and pork that they supplied a lot of the county jails around the state yeah. and made yeah. their own uniforms mm-hmm. their shoes everything and, and why it's why is it that way now? And I know why. It's because the legislature, some legislators had some business people that um, complained that furniture, for instance, they could build the furniture and stuff here a lot cheaper than they could sell it for, and so they, that's why. But yeah. And the food, of course, they, the suppliers wanted to supply food to the prison. That's a big, big contract. <laughs> you know, but there's no reason, especially with the new pen out there, with the property they have out there, there's absolutely no reason why they can't have vegetable farms and canneries and, yeah. you know, cattle and pork and stuff out there. Mm-hmm. I still knew the guy that ran prison industries out on the 
the uh, it's a new pen. Mm-hmm. I like cars, old cars. Yeah. And I found a '62 Cadillac. This was back, you know, in the mid '70s, something uh-huh. like that. And I decided I was going to restore it. And so I got a hold of him and asked him if, he, if I could bring it out and he'd paint it for me. He said, "Sure, as a project." And so I took it out and they had it for a while. And I went out to get it. And of course, when I took it out there, it had like a quarter tank of gas. Went out to get it, didn't have any gas at all in it. <laughs> and uh, but the paint job on it was absolutely horrible. It was terrible. I mean, you could see every every streak every time he made a pass with the gun be a dark line and a light you know and I said this is terrible and he said yeah, it is isn't it and he says yeah he said I got it's a new painter and he says if you'll leave it I'll we'll redo it for you and he says I got a real good painter he got out but he's coming back <laughs> so his painter came back and he painted it for me <laughs> so, yeah. can't do that anymore either so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, thank you so much, Kurt. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah thank you. Be of help, you know. you got to preserve this stuff if you can. Because yeah. I'm not getting any younger. I'm <laughs> sure the other officers in my era aren't either. So. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.